Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that cross-examines the past week's politics, although what other way to examine it is there when it's also very angry-making? This is episode 98, I'm and Duyeb, and this week I have taken initiative from the government and created my own hostile environment policy, whereby if you plan to come over and visit our new baby for more than an hour, I'll make it as difficult as possible for you to stay, with as much yawning, phone-checking and endless talking about nappy changes until you just give up and self-deport. Yes, according to the government, an administration error led to the Home Office swooping in and ruining the lives of many British citizens of the Windrush generation, people who have lived and worked in the UK for decades. I mean, come on, I've made loads of admin errors in my time, and the worst that ever happened was, like, a double booking or maybe a lost invoice. I've never fucked up admins so much that people got deported. But, hey, it must have just been an error, right? Because how else could you explain that a government like ours would have such a change of character so quickly? I mean, this is absolutely miles apart from, you know, all those detention centres that detain immigrants indefinitely. Uh, Or Brexit. Or, you know, those vans that were commissioned to drive around and tell people to go home or face arrest. That's arrest as in one word, not a rest. It wasn't a passive-aggressive way to tell people who came to the UK and worked really hard that they should have a well-deserved break. Former aide to the PM and man who looks like he should spend his time singing the tales of Frodo Baggins, Nick Timothy, quit Twitter after suggesting that Prime Minister and the only person for whom the recall reflex is her default setting, Theresa May, had not authorised the racist vans in 2013. But it turned out, like everything Nick Timothy's ever said to anyone, he was wrong. And instead it seems May not only backed the scheme, but also personally intervened to make sure the language on those vans was toughened up. Because previously I think they were just going to say, hey, where are you from? No, I mean originally. In amongst all this, Environment Secretary and bee-stung protruding colon Michael Gove told Radio 4's Today programme that the UK had a more welcoming attitude to immigrants than any other country in the EU. And yes, he's right, because while Sweden and Germany rank amongst the best countries in the world for immigrants, how many of them stock the Daily Mail as the first free paper you receive at the airport? So welcoming! Come to Britain! Now fuck off again! I mean, why not just loop the airport departure lounge so the signs to arrivals put you straight back on the plane you arrived on? 
Of course, Jacob Rees-Mogg, a man who clearly drills holes into the attic floor to spy on the people below him, blames a whole Windrush scandal on the EU, who have apparently made Britain the sort of country who demand to see your papers. I mean, this is confusing, as Mogg has regularly voted in favour of a stricter asylum system and tougher enforcement of immigration rules. But here he is, suggesting no-one needs any papers at all, and passport checks should just have their gates open like the Boxing Day sales at Next. I'm sure that can't be it. I mean, I reckon it's way more likely that he envisions a world where everyone is no longer checked by papers, but instead by colour of skin, accent, and whether or not they've been brought over to work on his garden or be his children's nanny. Labour leader and toothbrush in a suit, Jeremy Corbyn, got very excited at the prospect of not being pinned as the racist party leader of the week, and has told the government to end their hostile environment policy, which is basically a very veiled way of saying, just quit. I mean, I'm pretty sure just knowing who the UK government are puts tons of people off coming in the first place and is therefore a hostile environment policy in itself. May has apologised and said that those who've been treated unfairly by the Home Office will be compensated where appropriate. Considering most people affected by this have lost their homes, jobs, healthcare and dignity, what on earth do they have to do to be deemed appropriate for compensation? I worry May will demand that they have to prove they're grateful for being treated as second-class citizens before having to perform some sort of traditional ceremonial dance. So far, May's apology has mainly been to look at plans that will unfairly discriminate against migrant voters in the next election by asking for identification at the polling station. Yes, the identification that they haven't had because of that administration error. Great, look how welcoming we are. Come to Britain and if we allow you to stay, we'll take all the hassle of democracy out of your hands as well. I mean, why add the worries of voting to your concerns about being forcefully shoved onto a plane overnight to send you back to a country you've never been to in the first place? Yes, you will be able to grab a free Daily Mail before you fly. God, we're so, so welcoming. In Brexit news, and yes, there is some this week, the Lords proved they're not dead yet once again by voting 348 to 225 that the government have to look into the possibility of staying in the EU customs union, something that the government are insisting they won't do. Classic Brits, assuming that they're welcome everywhere else while they won't let anyone come here in the first place. They're like the dodgy boyfriend who always wants to stay at yours and never at his, and then one day you sneak round and find out it's because he lives in a rose-tinted, gaslit version of the past. It does seem more and more like Brexit will be pretty much what we had before, but worse, and for more money. Which is odd, because when that happened to Freddo's, people were livid. Meanwhile, across the world, North Korea have announced that they are suspending nuclear testing. That must be because they've recently seen how pointless missiles are when US President and untreated ulcer Donald Trump is able to ruin an entire country just by tweeting. And lastly, as I'm recording this, the Duchess of Cambridge has gone into hospital to give birth to their third royal baby. But the real question is, what if the Queen rejects this possible host body as well? Meanwhile, the new baby's granddad, Prince Charles, has been named as the new head of the Commonwealth, which is a surprise to no one. I mean, I'm not saying it would make up for the Windrush scandal, but if every time he was going to fly on diplomatic duties to a Commonwealth country, it would really help if Charles was just unexpectedly bundled onto a plane late at night by some Serco guards. Yeah, here we are again. And there you are again. Oh, look at you with your face and, you know, face accompaniments. I think that's what they're called. Um, thank you for listening once again. I am the victim of karma this week, as after I did a truly shit dad joke last week about hay fever on the uh, episode 97, I have been hit full in the face by hay fever this week. Uh, I believe it was all tree pollen, which is essentially tree jizz getting all up in my face. No wonder it stinks the eyes. Um, I am a big fan of nature, but every year when my nose starts going uh, and the eyes start streaming, I do 
do have moments where I honestly think all plant life can absolutely do one. Um, on the plus side, it does now look like I'm crying all the time, which means after I see Avengers Infinity War this weekend, it will provide a good disguise for my likely emotional distress. Oh, God, it's so stressful. Who will die? Is it Cap? Is it Iron Man? Is it the Marvel franchise? Because after 20 films, we're like, yeah, that is enough now. Oh, it's so tricky to call. Um, I'll tell you some superheroes I never bore of, though. That is right. It is you lot who keep adding reviews to the iTunes page, along with some very lovely words. So please keep doing that, as it really helps the show. And you never know, you might end up with your own Marvel film in about 40 years' time, when they've run out of everything else uh, and are left with you and, I don't know, Manfred Mann. Um, If you don't use the iTunes, uh, which were incredible stats, another possible superhero, um, most uh, my incredible stats suggest that most of you do, then please do give this show a review on Stitcher uh, or anywhere else that allows you to. I mean... I don't know, try Just Eat and then maybe people will order deliveries from me and then I'll just read some words into a pizza box and then they'll be super disappointed when it arrives. Um, also, if you can donate to this podcast, that would be appreciated and you can do that with a teeny tiny monthly donation to the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash bro. And yes, I had to record that twice because I kept saying Patreon instead of Patreon again. Um, or you can do a one-off buy me a coffee type donation at ko-fi.com forward slash bro. And this week I will use all donations to hire someone to go around telling trees to fucking stop it. Also, this week, play the uh oh, I don't know podcast that isn't my own one, Claxon, now! <laughs> I did a podcast that isn't this one. Gasp and shock. Yeah, if you want more of my voice in your ears, uh, check out the brilliant three-track podcast that was featured in The Guardian a while back. Uh, It's hosted by the lovely Gabriel Iblulu, who has the best radio voice ever. Um, He should definitely definitely be on Six Music. And the point of the show is that guests pick their favourite three tracks, which was impossible for me and caused a minor breakdown because I like too many musics uh, and it was so much stress. Um, Anyway, aside from me having a mind blank on Nat King Cole songs, which stupid and forgetting entirely about being a runner at Ninja Tune uh, when I was sort of 23 or my favourite hip hop MCs um, it was a very very fun chat so do have a listen to that it's called 3 Track Podcast um, and all of those episodes are very lovely uh, indeed so worth a subscribe um, also this past weekend uh, I don't know you might find this interesting um, I watched the BBC 4's Imagine series on Cuba uh, called Habaneros um, it's amazing and it's really worth a watch with some amazing footage from 40s and 50s Cuba onwards. I don't know how they did it, because like, cameras were really heavy then, but it looks like they're walking around with a GoPro. Did they just have, like, was a GoPro then? Did they just have, like, five people carrying it while someone walked it around on a selfie stick? I've, I've honestly got no idea. Um, anyway, uh, I went to Cuba in 2007, um, and this is the first documentary I've seen that really captures how odd uh, it is, because it's sort of hard to explain, but it's, it's weird, because you see an oppressive police force and buildings falling apart, but also the happiest kids you've ever seen, very healthy as well, from all the free healthcare, just playing in the streets, feeling safe in a way that I'd never seen before. Um, I also realised on that trip that in Cuba they don't think ham is a meat, uh, and I'm veggie, so there'd be a cheese sandwich or a cheese and ham sandwich, and then I'd choose the cheese sandwich, and it would come with ham, but just less ham than the cheese and ham sandwich. Incredible. Uh, anyway, with Raul Castro stepping down last week, and it being the first time a Castro hasn't been leader of Cuba, 
humour for well over 50 years. It is a very good time to watch that documentary on the iPlayers. Um, do check that out. Uh, right, um, just to say again, there's no headlines this week, and I apologise for that. Uh, next Monday is the last Monday where I'm gigging on a Monday uh, on the Frankie Boyle support. So as soon as those Monday gigs are over, I should be able to add a little bit more to this podcast. I apologise for that, but that combined with hay fever, combined with lack of sleep from baby, means no headlines. Um, however, what there is on this week's show, though, I am talking to Dr. Dave O'Brien about the newly released Panic 2018 report into underrepresentation of the working classes in the arts, uh, plus a look at the Windrush scandal and a very small little bit of Brexit fallout. Sorry. But hey, at least that goddamn jingle returns, am I right? And that's what we all have to comfort us in 2021, as who knows what the fuck will happen. But, you know, at least we'll always have that jingle. Even though you can't eat it, uh, and obviously it probably won't be enough food to go around post-Brexit, but hey, I could just play it into a pizza box and have that jingle delivered right to you, which may help. It won't help. It might help a little bit. Uh, speaking of which, have this oral pizza as well. Where are all the working class people in the arts? And no, don't say EastEnders, because actually, uh, for a start, that is not true. Most of the actors playing the parts in EastEnders aren't actually working class. And also, I said arts. Uh, it probably won't surprise you that there is a huge underrepresentation of anyone who isn't Benedict Cumberbatch, or at least also a middle to upper class white male, across the whole arts industry. We've seen the Oscars So White protest from a couple of years back that slightly changed with Moonlight winning in 2017, but only after the wrong film was read out because black films are that invisible to the movie community. And then this year, Get Out was beaten by Shape of Water, a film about a giant fish man. Oscars So White bait. Am I right? But it's not just films, it's theatre, radio, visual arts, dance and all across the arty spectrum, which should really have more colours than any other just by nature of genre alone. You ever noticed how it's mainly white people who work at museums and how they don't like it when you try and kiss the paintings? Um, sorry, ignore that last bit. I mean, as someone who works in the comedy industry, if you can call that arts, I've really noticed the difference recently the cost of living has had on those who've decided comedy is a career for them. I mean, professional acts who've been working for years are having to resort to extra day job work, while new acts from wealthy backgrounds can afford to have accommodation while earning nothing and still somehow pay thousands to be part of the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. This is the same for any arts subject that's underpaid and so can now only be taken up by those who already support themselves. Not only that, but so many television shows focus on the rich, with there still being a dearth of programming about any other area of society, unless, of course, you count the news. So, as I said, none of that will likely surprise you, but a good way to tackle and put forward the need for changes in the arts is sturdy research proving that underrepresentation is the case. The Panic 2018 report was published last week and is billed as the first sociological study on social mobility in the cultural industries. I spoke to one of the paper's authors, Dr Dave O'Brien at Edinburgh University, who explained to me why the arts industry is so, so socially closed. And no, it's not just because we're actually all quite awkward off stage. Dave explained to me the many reasons working class people as well as women and people of colour are neglected all across the arts and thankfully we didn't at all discuss the kissing paintings thing. Forget I said that, just don't, just I never said it. Anyway, I found this a very fascinating chat and as you will hear I probably interjected with slightly too many but what about comedy questions because that is all I understand. Um, also, while I was recording this uh, it popped up on the news feed that Labour are going to address the lack of diversity in the British film industry with new tax relief rules. Um, apparently they've said they're going to put a rocket booster under the industry to improve inclusion uh, which doesn't, I mean it just sounds like a lot of people will get horribly injured. They should probably really re don't don't put that with all the flames in there. Anyway, um, hope you find this very interesting. Here is Dave. 
can you tell me about what the Panic 2018 uh, project is and how you carried out your research about it? Yeah, sure thing. So three years ago, uh, I was uh, formerly working at Goldsmiths before I moved to the University of Edinburgh. And through a series of conversations with an organisation called Create London, we decided it'd be interesting to do some social science work on inequalities in uh, the art and cultural sector. So we partnered with The Guardian to do some survey work. Um, after that, we did um, over 200 interviews following up from the survey work we did with creative professionals. Um, and that has a lot of really rich and brilliant data, and the interviews are incredible, you know, kind of uh, people's sort of life stories that we'd um, tease out over the course of hour-long discussions. But we're also keen to think about what um, is existing data sets tell us. So we've been working a lot with secondary data sets um, of what kind of, this is quite boring, but administrative data. So things like the ONS have this survey of the labor force every year, uh, which basically tells us, you know, how many unemployed people they are, uh, there are, what pay rates are like, so we use that. Uh, we've used uh, this new set of census data uh, that goes back to 1971. We've looked at the DCMS, that's the Ministry of Culture, uh, have an annual survey um, of kind of who does what in cultural terms. That There are some issues with how they define culture, but we've been using that as well. And there's this thing called the British Social Attitudes Survey as well, um, which has been running for about 30 years. So we've tried to combine um, sort of new, I guess, internet forms of research, traditional social science interviews, and kind of old school sociology uh, secondary data analysis. And and so because the, the findings of the report, I mean, it was it was to look into representation in the arts. And I mean, I, and I say this probably as someone from the arts. I think it's uh, from the arts that makes me sound far more grand than I am. Someone who <laughs> vaguely works in the arts. I am. Um, you know, I think it's, it's probably understood within the sector that we know that working class people aren't represented very well. But what your survey's uh, done is, is or what your report has done is really shown quite detailed why that is and what the factors are that lead to that. So can you tell us a bit more about why? Yeah. What are the key factors that stop equal representation in the arts world? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things to, to say on that subject to do a bit of ground clearing i think the first thing to really kind of foreground is the idea of intersectionality so the idea that class is intersecting with other forms um, of demographic characteristics such as gender and ethnicity and the kind of uh, burden of exclusions and the experiences of barriers fall differently on different social groups depending on their demographic characteristics. So that's kind of one thing to, to bear in mind. The other thing, just as a little sort of academic note of caution, is myself and um, Orion and Mark, the other researchers, we're very much specialists in kind of um, stratification around class rather than, say, disability um, or sexuality, for example. So we've concentrated really um, on how class intersects with uh, ethnicity and gender, which are the two other categories that come up really obviously in the data we've been analysing. But we are trying to do some work uh, on disability later down the line. What we can see is that, um, broadly speaking, the arts are uh, white and dominated by people from middle-class social origins. Mm. In some um, 
culture and creative jobs. Um, there are overrepresentations of women compared to the rest of the working population, and in others there are um, underrepresentations of women. So to give you an example, the film TV industries have really quite low uh, numbers of women working in them, um, whereas say you know publishing and museums uh, are more balanced, and, and indeed museums. Um, have a more sort of feminized workforce. But at the same time, museums are very, very white compared to the rest of the working population. There are really low numbers um, of people of color, people from ethnic minority communities working in museums. So even though museums, you know, maybe are telling a good story about gender, they're not telling a great story about ethnicity and museums are not telling a great story about social class. Now, the barriers are complicated, and in the report, what we try to do is pick up on a range of things that may be um, at the forefront of discussions, such as unpaid labor, uh, which is obviously a really crucial barrier, but also to think about more subtle things like um, the attitudes of senior decision makers. Uh, what we found in some of our online survey work is that senior decision makers are likely to tell us um, that hard work and talent is what explains success in cultural jobs rather than, say, uh, recognizing barriers of ethnicity, class, and gender. We also looked at other kinds of attitudes, uh, such as the kind of liberalism, the left-wingness, you know, the sense of kind of the sector being the good guys um, compared to other occupations, and also the crucial kind of subtle cues that are important when people get hired. So for example, social networks, we show that, uh, again, this is from the web survey data, that the arts um, tend to be dominated by people who know other people in the arts rather than knowing people in working class occupations. This is intuitively sort of, you know, kind of logical because all of these occupations are deeply dependent on knowing people for work, you know, picking up work quite quickly, getting a phone call on a Sunday saying, can you be on set on a Monday morning, this kind of stuff. But it suggests that there's a bit of a distance between those in the arts and, you know, working class um, workers or working class occupations. Also, there's a bit of a distance in terms of cultural taste. So in America, there's been a lot of good work on this idea about hiring being a form of cultural matching. So you get jobs because you're able to kind of like show you fit with an institution or show you fit with the kind of people who want to hire you. And cultural taste, you know, knowing the right cues, like, you know, not seeming snobbish on the one hand, but also, uh, you know, having a deep and detailed knowledge of an art form or whatever, a crucial as a means of people saying, this is me and I fit. And again, we show that um, media workers and arts workers are really different to the rest of the population in terms of cultural consumption. So on the one hand, this is a story about kind of explicit barriers, such as unpaid work, more subtle barriers, but it's also a story about the difference between uh, the arts and the rest of the population. And there are obviously kind of, you know, public policy and politics implications um, attached to this as well. Sure. I mean, one of the um, I want to come to the sort of uh, the you know the element of who you know in a second, but the one of the things that really strikes me, especially for a report, is you know how much do you think that uh, the fact that like museum exhibitions cost a lot now, going to the theatre costs a lot. If people have to have their you know be matched by cultural taste, but they can't have access to those things because they're too expensive, then how do they ever reach those levels of you know correct cultural taste, as it were? Okay, so this is going to sound uh, slightly controversial and also uh, slightly boring, 
So basically, the evidence suggests, and this, this will like blow your mind, this idea, the evidence suggests that people will pay for things they like and want to do, and they don't care about and aren't interested in things that they don't like and don't want to do. <laughs> so, and like, it sounds like I'm being kind of like flippant because that is really something that actually particularly uh, state-funded arts organizations slightly struggle with. And often uh, discussions about price um, and, you know, kind of like the cost of getting through the door is often a way of not having a conversation about what are we as a museum or a theatre offering. It means our audience is made for the people that it's made up of. To give you a good example, museums uh, in the UK have been free for a very long time. Um, and all the evidence that although having free entry to national museums has had some positive impact on these sorts of social groups that don't usually or traditionally go to museums, the main beneficiaries have been people who were kind of anyway, so basically uh, affluent, educated, middle-class people and tourists, because obviously national museums being free is, is different to uh, the cost of museums in continental Europe. What this has is that Although we should be defending uh, funding for cultural institutions for a variety of reasons, and we've got to be really clear that under current government, if funding was taken away to subsidise uh, free entry, it's not like it would be ploughed back in into you know, development programmes, education programmes, outreach programmes, or whatever. The money would just go. Um, so that's you know a kind of an important um, point about political context, but really we shouldn't really be talking about cost. What we should be talking about is the offer. Why is it that institutions are perceived as kind of not for us? Why is it that people's, you know, everyday forms of culture that they invest time and money in is not given the same social status by the government and to an extent by arts organisations as the sort of things that government is going to pay for? Um, I might just make a final point on that that some of this, and, and we've tried to be sort of cautious in the report about how we sort of write this up, but it, it, it gets kind of maybe academic and boring quite quickly, but some of this is to do with how you do survey work as well. So the way the government does survey work reflects the government's interest in what it funds, rather than, I'd argue, reflecting an interest in what is every form of cultural activity across the population. Now, the government surveys have got slightly better uh, over the last decade or so in kind of reflecting a range of cultural pastimes, particularly in terms of thinking about kind of more digital modes of engagement. But really, the mechanisms, the kind of social science tools we have to think about the population's cultural taste reflect those uh, high and low or, you know, legitimate and maybe everyday uh, forms of culture and, and the divisions that I've been trying to be kind of critiquing. So yeah, basically too long, didn't read version is price shouldn't really be where the action is. The action should be what is it about institutions that means people don't care about. Sure. But then I, I guess also that part of that, you know, you could say that were there more, say, arts funding, were there more money ploughed into things, there could be more outreach programmes, there could be more art that goes out to people that you know, outside of the institutions. You know, for example, if people are put off going to the National Theatre, for example, because they don't think it's for them, 
if more money was put into outreach theatre programmes, then it would be done in places more local to people, or w would that not be the case? Or Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd slightly challenge you just in terms of, like, flipping the thinking. I think what we have to do is not think about what is the problem with the audience that they don't want to come to us, but think much more about what is the problem with the institution that it is appealing to the audience. So, for example, when... Um, National Theatre puts on uh, high-profile, Oscar-nominated people of colour uh, on its stage. It gets a very different demographic through the doors as compared with when it has, you know, a kind of, like, traditional National Theatre-style offer. And I think, yeah, you know, one of the things that more arts funding could do is allow institutions to maybe, I suppose they define it as kind of taking artistic risks, but really, you know, kind of, like, change how they operate, change, you know, the kind of um, writers, directors that, you know, uh, kind of putting onto their stage and particularly putting onto their big stages in terms of changing their offer. So again, you know, like funding is crucial because it opens up the possibility of doing things in a different way. One of the things that I think the report may be implicitly and, and, and perhaps sometimes explicitly gestures towards is the idea that the cultural sector, as dominated by well-educated middle-class people, is serving an audience of well-educated middle-class people. So in many ways, you know, the bigger institutions are kind of serving their audience pretty well. And to an extent, if there was no funding, you know, maybe they'd concentrate really on serving their audience even more, thus closing down the possibility of of taking risks and changing their offer um, towards a, a broader and more diverse population. Sure. It's, it's fascinating. I, I worked with them, um, uh, a very odd piece of work for me, but I worked with a dance group uh, last year and year before who um, told me that they once had... Uh, they, they, spe they specifically do pieces uh, for audiences that had never seen dance before, and that's what they um, kind of do. They're quite amazing. But they had a meeting in France with a French dance group who were given... Uh, funding, lots, you know, because the arts are subsidised in France, and uh, she said the French group were just amazed at how much work they'd got done because they hadn't really done much for you. They were being funded; it didn't actually push them to do very much. And yeah, said, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry, come. No, no, I was going to say, yeah, it's it, it, it's interesting that because that, it, for, like, it's sort of swings around about you know funding carries uh, like Spider-Man style great responsibilities as well as kind of you know like forms of artistic and cultural freedom as well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Dave in a minute, but first... Yo! There's something about the name the Windrush Generation that makes me imagine a group of specially trained warriors who can control weather stuff, you know, like the last airbenders but with a less homophobic and thus had to be changed for the UK name. But actually, the Windrush Generation is the term for people who arrived in the UK from 1948 to 1971 from the Caribbean and other Commonwealth countries. And the name was coined after the first boat that arrived at Tilbury Docks in Essex in 1948. That's right, the MV Empire Windrush. God, they were so lucky not to have to do that in Boaty but Boatface era, or it would sound really shit. The reason that these people headed to the UK? Well, we needed workers, as after the war, lots of our lot were dead, because, you know, war. I mean, it is baffling how so many anti-immigration protesters are also so pro-war, because ultimately, they're going to be quite upset at some point. There's no actual record how many people came over during those years because many children arrived on parents' passports and then many also didn't apply for travel documents. But we do know that now, in the UK, there are about half a million people that were born in a Commonwealth country and came over between those years. So that's 500,000 people whose families travelled to the UK to help work and keep the country going after the war. So why, when they've spent decades adhering to the bigoted standards of British values and contributing to the country that gave them indefinite right to remain, are so many now finding themselves chased down by the Home Office and threatened with deportation? Got no idea. Sorry, everyone. Bye. Hear you next week. No, I'm I'm joking. Uh, There are a number of reasons, and none of them are remotely okay, and pretty much all just highlight the institutionalised racism in not only our current government, but also the Labour Party and society and the Star Wars prequels. Well, okay, not the last one, but hey, we all know it's there, don't we? I mean, there is no hiding... I mean, Jar Jar's accent, Jesus Christ. Anyway... So the first reason, and the main reason, is because our current government have a record of this. Uh, No, it's not Mike Reid's UKIP Calypso, but it may as well be, as they've been pandering to the anti-immigration demands that were brought to the forefront by everyone's least favourite party of Gammon. In 2010, the Conservatives brought in the hostile environment policy. No, it's got nothing to do with my flat after I've had beans. Instead, it was a set of measures to make staying in the UK as difficult as possible for people without leave to remain. I mean, as if our shitty weather, constantly failing transport, collapsing councils, austerity measures, and at the time having a Prime Minister who looked like someone punched some wafer-thin hand slices together wasn't enough to create some sort of hostile environment in the first place. I mean, why would you try to get rid of anyone that would actually survive all of that and want to stay? Well, it's because the Conservatives pledged to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands, which is a stupid promise. Firstly, because they refused to remove foreign students from those figures, which is roughly 130,000 people a year, and for whom the benefits of their arrival outweigh the cost by ten times. As said a study by the Higher Education Policy Institute, so it did. La-di-da. Secondly, overall immigration figures in 2016 were 588,000 people, including those foreign students. So to narrow that down to just tens of thousands of people requires drastic and unnecessary action that not only ruins all of the industries those people are coming to work in across the board, but also doesn't really suggest to other countries that we're too great to work with. I mean, hey, hey, uh, Brexit's done now, so come trade and work with us. No, 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 we'll come come to you. Sorry, we'll come to you. No, I I mean, by coming not here, you stay there. We'll peruse how you can help us from over Skype. Uh, we've got the best higher educational institutes in the world. No, you can't study there. Uh, just look at this picture. We'll send you some worksheets by second class post. 
Also, thirdly, or is it fourthly, anyway, somethingly, it's also going to be near impossible to do to reduce immigration numbers down to tens of thousands unless you really do surround the country with massive electric fences and close all airports and docks. Or, alternatively, encourage so many Brits to leave that net migration figure will be zero. Which, to be fair, does often seem like the Conservatives' plan. Now, back in 2010, everyone's favourite taxidermied bird of prey and least favourite Prime Minister, Theresa May, was, of course, Home Office Secretary. And she said quite openly in 2012, you know, the year we invited the world to come over for the Olympics, that the aim was to create, here in Britain, a really hostile environment for illegal immigrants. Ah, isn't she lovely? So plans went into place for a deport first, appeal later application process. Because that is really handy if you come from a war-torn area and have to get sent home and fight for your life while trying to find a decent Wi-Fi connection and fill out an overly complicated form before printing it on something that will definitely have an inkjet. Then there was a policy to remove any homeless European Union citizens, which may explain why the government have increased homelessness by double as some sort of horrific, escalating, drastic plan to deport several of them at once. Then there was the really nasty assumption that people would do the snitching work for the government, with NHS staff, charities, banks and landlords being required to carry out ID checks, which has led to people not being given homes or accounts because of their name and birthplace. Schools were required to collect data on children up until recently when Against Borders for Children won their case. And then there were the oppressive immigration detention centres that I interviewed Mia Sullivan about last week, and of course the go-home racist vans. Those were commissioned to drive around the UK with a big sign saying, go home or face arrest on them, which shocked everyone because we had no idea you could make van drivers even more racist. This hostile environment policy has purposefully complex rules, with even the Court of Appeal referring to them as Byzantium, which is an interesting term because that also refers to the actions of an empire that was on its last legs. But these policies were popular for an era of newly revived nationalism, and because it allowed the government to go, hey, you know all those austerity policies that we brought in that are destroying you, and you know that big crash what the banks did? Well, hey, look over there, that man has a funny accent, so it's probably actually his fault because he wants to work in the NHS and heal people. Labour also implicit in this because they backed the 2014 Immigration Act that the Hostile Environment Policy was part of, with only 18 MPs voting against it, including Jeremy Corbyn, Diane Abbott and John McDonnell. The Labour Party at the time even had a mug that said controls on immigration on it, you know, so you could get it for people who want everyone to know exactly how they like their coffee. But the government has been warned about the effects of this policy over the years and that people such as those from the Windrush generation would be targeted and mostly the government have not given much of a fuck. The Joint Council for Welfare of Immigrants and Liberty, the Civil Rights Group, released a dossier in 2014 highlighting the impact of the policies. Diane Abbott raised it in the comments in 2014 and even last month May was told of the case of a man who was being denied cancer treatment unless he paid over 50 grand, even though he'd lived in the UK for 44 years. May said she sympathised but would not intervene as he needed to evidence his settled status. God, I don't even believe the sympathise bit personally. She hasn't passed that section of the Turing test so far in my book. So here we are, the Windrush generation finding that they do not have the evidence they should be in the UK. Many of the landing cards belonging to them were destroyed in 2009 by the UK Border Agency on data protection cards, something that Theresa May used against Labour in PMQs because there's nothing like political point scoring over people being deported, which is exactly the sort of thing the Conservatives would say if it was the other way round. But it was an agency decision, not a ministerial one, so Labour can't take the blame for that. The government now say there is no question that these people of the Windrush generation should have a right to stay, but there's likely to be around 60,000 people affected, and if the Home Office can't handle that and is having admin errors, then it's really very worrying about what will happen when 3 million EU citizens suddenly become categorised as immigrants as well after Brexit. 
Home Secretary Amber Rudd said the Home Office had become too concerned with policy and strategy and lost sight of the individual, which explains why she'd lost sight of being the individual in charge of it all. Rudd told the Commons that the state had made an error. You're the state, Rudd. It is you. I mean, no wonder she's not sure if these people are citizens. She has absolutely no clue where she works or where on earth she is. This should be a resignation issue for Rudd and May. It was brought in when May was Home Secretary and Rudd has now continued that legacy. But it won't be. Despite pressure from Labour MP David Lammy, who's been on this since the beginning, and Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott, and from the public who all think these people shouldn't be deported. Instead, May has apologised for any anxiety caused, because that is really going to help those who've lost homes and jobs and cancer treatments. I mean, maybe she could also have a thought for some of them, you know, before she goes to sleep, or perhaps send some wishes for the really lucky ones. Rudd has waived language tests and citizenship fees for any Windrush generation families, which is nice, because they can apply for those to be sent to the homes they no longer have. It's the very least they can do, and they only did it because people have noticed and actually got annoyed about it. I mean, it's weird, but the UK public seem to have said, well, it's one thing to pick on people immigrating over to the UK now, but picking on the people bigger sink of good immigrants is one step too far. Not those immigrants, they say. They learned the language and didn't take our jobs and benefits at the same time like some sort of magic money wizards. Ultimately, all of this scandal will eventually just be blamed on an administration fault. And then in years to come, people will wonder what happened here and someone will say, oh, it was probably a bad immigrant that lost some important papers and then it'll all start again because no one ever learns anything ever. And now, back to Dave. Yeah, it's, it was weird. I mean, as somebody who'd always sort of advocated funding for the arts, it was the first time I thought, oh, hang on, maybe maybe it's not all as amazing. Um, it's very interesting. Um, but it, the, back to your sort of earlier point about how it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's about who you know, which is something that, uh, again, especially in the side of the arts I'm in, of the kind of comedy and the, and the theatre, that's kind of what you're, you're taught. That's what you're taught when you first go in, is it's kind of you've got to meet lots of people and you've got to, you know, work out who runs all the gigs and make all these connections. Um but I guess uh, if you're, you know, what what stops people from getting in, involved in that? What makes it kind of a closed shop? Yeah, I, I mean, this um, there's a lot going on here and a, and a, and a lot to unpack. So uh, one really obvious thing that I don't think is like controversial is uh, the London problem. So um, from the government down, actually, everybody accepts that. Um, creative industries broadly are overrepresented in London. London kind of dominates uh, creative industries. They're, in fact, the government's industrial strategy um, really lays bare the dominance of London. There are clusters of creative industry activity, uh, mainly in kind of urban urban areas across across the country. But London is where where the action is. London has and has had for a long time uh, a massive major housing crisis. Um, and that in itself is an immediate barrier if you don't come from either wealthy parents who can afford to maybe, you know, subsidise you in London or uh, have a family living in London, which means, you know, you're, you're based here already. If you can't access, um, I mean, I'll, I'll take publishing for, for an example. You know, publishing is heavily based, heavily dominated by London. You almost certainly have to have some relationship with London to kind of make it in publishing. If you don't have that, then, you know, you're not going to get in, you're not going to get networked. But publishing is also, I mean, it's getting better, but it's got a longstanding reputation for unpaid internships. Um, obviously, they're, you know, in theory, illegal if they're, you know, kind of proxies for work. But, you know, there are lots of... Um, 
continued bad examples um, that at least come up in, in, in social media um, discussions. You know, if you can't afford to say do six months at a publishing house based in London, you won't get the kinds of contacts, etc., um, that allow you to get into the industry. So the I guess kind of like um, you know uncontroversial um, logical kind of barriers that are really to do with kind of kind of money. Um, but then there's the more subtle things. So um, to extend the London problem, there's also, um, I think, a kind of higher education problem that often uh, we see a relationship between going to particular institutions, Oxford and Cambridge, and being um, in particular bits um, of creative industries, particularly the ones that are to do with like commissioning. So it's quite unlikely that you'd get a senior commissioner who hadn't been to somewhere reasonably prestigious. If it's not Oxford or Cambridge, it might be Durham or Manchester or Bristol. And this is a kind of like more complicated, um, I guess, kind of, you know, social structural problem to unpack. And then there's even more sort of things. So I mentioned the kind of like hiring as cultural matching. And I do think that's crucial. Now, this might sound a bit sort of technical, but myself and a colleague, Sam Friedman, who's at the LSE, did a lot of work with actors. And one of the things we, we did was took uh, a concept that's been developed by a social scientist or social theorist called uh, Nermal Puar called the somatic norm. And what we find is that um, across lots of different cultural industries, not just acting, there's a kind of idea about what it is to be, say, a director or what it is to be a playwright or what it is to be like, uh, you know, uh, a computer games designer or what it is to be an actor. And this often is very closely related to ideas about, you know, kind of whiteness, maleness, uh, having a particular kind of accent, you know, uh, embodying, you know, kind of uh, the way you dress, the way you present yourself in a particular way. And that is both, you know, a kind of way of including a particular set of people, basically affluent origin white men who match this somatic norm, but also a way of excluding people who don't fit that. And this, again, you know, in subtle terms, can often be expressed in ways that are hard to um, see unless you know what you're looking for. So often discussions come about, you know, particularly say for gender, that, you know, uh, a female candidate for a job, you know, maybe just kind of like wasn't powerful enough in an interview or, you know, didn't seem like she had the right kind of like, you know, go-getting uh, Spirits, or if women are assertive, uh, perhaps in you know like middle management positions for publishing or museums, galleries, or theatre, maybe they're described as like you know, or maybe they're a bit too forceful. You know, maybe um, like they come across as a bit aggressive. If they're adopting the same kinds of uh, traits that in men would be like, oh yeah, you know, he seemed really powerful. He'd be a good leader, that kind of stuff. And it's particularly problematic when you get into ideas about talent. Um, what you tend to find is that people, although they're, you know, really attached to um, discussions of talent as being how you make it, you know, you've got to be talented, you've got to be interesting. Often talent moves quickly um, and subtly into discussions of basically people like us, you know, are they a kind of like, you know, posh white guy that reminds me a bit of me? Oh, they're totally talented. 
you know so again you know there are kind of like things that it's really obvious and really straightforward to discuss and then there are things that are much more subtle and much more complicated and reveal a lot about you know the kind of broader structures of british society and also the kinds of implicit biases uh, that people you know like for for sometimes good reasons get uh, quite, you know, sort of angry and uh, and quite kind of offended if uh, if you try and reveal. So it's it's a complicated mess. Sure, yeah, hugely. I mean, um, just to go to the, the first part of what you're saying, I think, uh, again, uh, I only have my industry to go on, I'm afraid, but like uh, the Edinburgh Fringe, for example, lots of people don't seem to realise it costs thousands to do it, and yet most of yeah. the acts going up are, don't earn for the month either, and they have to pay for accommodations, whereas there's accommodation back home, and it, it renders people completely bankrupt in order to oh, further yeah. their art, which is bizarre. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the fringe is is a really useful thing to talk about, actually, because in a lot of our field work uh, interviews with um, theatre people, what we found was that unpaid labour for people from kind of like uh, working class origins tended to be about the struggle to do like crap student films that never gave them show reels, and you know, like having to work unpaid because maybe they might get you know like a writing credit or, you know, perhaps um, if they kind of, you know, read someone else's script unpaid and, and did, you know, kind of helped with the treatments or something, maybe they'd get asked to do more of it in the future and that might lead to something paid. Whereas middle-class origin people or people who had, you know, kind of wealth, family resources, people who had what we call the right kind of cultural capital would talk about, you know, the struggles of working unpaid, but they'd be things like going to Edinburgh for the month, to get their show off the ground, you know, which would be unpaid, which they'd take, you know, maybe loans from their family to get going. But this might pay off in terms of a BBC producer might sign them up. Or, you know, doing, like, um, or being in the position where, like, they were the unpaid uh, film directors um, that would get, you know, a short film uh, as a kind of payoff for a project, whereas other people they were working with were just exploited. So these kind of opportunities are um, differently um, offered or, uh, you know, are kind of stratified, as social scientists would call it, across um, the cultural working population, um, often really kind of obviously based on social class, but also bound up uh, with gender and ethnicity as well. And it creates, I mean, this again, back to kind of subtle things that are difficult to talk about. It creates a problem of, I think, a kind of false sense of social solidarity. So if everybody who is, you know, a kind of like young person coming through a variety of different creative industries is talking about the struggle of, you know, working for free and not making money, then it gives a sense of we're all in it together. But one of the things we try and show in the part of the report on unpaid labour and in the academic paper that underpins it is that actually, you know, although the experience of unpaid labour uh, might be common, the kinds of, um, I suppose, payoffs to it are very, very different depending on the resources you bring into a cultural job. Sure. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. It's, I mean, it's, it's phenomenal how uh, so many areas, and I think something that I've learned, you know, that, um, uh, it sounds like a weird humble brag, but a few years back I had a script option, which was the most exciting thing to me, but they pay you a small fee and then you have to do three months of unpaid work to get yeah. it any further. And you think, well, so I'm just writing for nothing. <laughs> and that's really hard to, to live off, you know. Um, and that that's a reoccurring thing and something that I know quite a lot of, of acts and writers and stuff have come across, you know. It's very weird.
Oh, yeah, I mean, social media has started to challenge this really neatly. So there's like lots of Twitter feeds that are like, you know, I think it's like at for exposure and stuff like this that post some of these, you know, can you just design my website for me? I can't possibly pay you, but, you know, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, these kind of crazy things. And there's been a useful backlash as well. I know the VNA a few weeks ago uh, put up. Uh, a call for what was essentially it looked like quite an exploitative actually unpaid internship to work at the vna you know obviously down in london and you know that immediately there was a good social media response calling out the vna you know tweeting tristram hunt you know saying you can't get away with this you shouldn't behave like this and you know in some ways that the kind of like uh, the awareness of these uh, potentially exploitative practices um are actually good, but there's still a lot to do, I think. Mm, absolutely. Um, and I just wanted to go back to your kind of earlier point about the kind of uh, people, um, sorry, I think how you phrased it, but you know, the, where they're people only kind of giving opportunities to people like themselves. Um, is there a I, I, I try to think what the word is. Is a kind of, um, I felt in terms of like acts I've spoken to that there's a, a danger of. Um, uh, people feel or companies and production companies thinking they've fulfilled their quota because they've done one thing that applies to a group of people and then they don't touch that ever again and to give an example i know a um a very good black comedian who had a radio show opportunity and he wrote a pilot about his family and he was told by the radio company oh we already have uh, a show about a family from a black comedian even though his was very different and about his family and very personal and but you know they kind of decided well we've got one of those so we don't need another one um is that is that a problem where you know um, theatres or wherever we're talking institutions decide that they've kind of fulfilled it with one thing and then move on? I mean, it it's kind of I was going to say it's rare, but it's not rare to hear this kind of explicitly stated, and particularly amongst the more kind of clueless bits of the sector who will you know kind of blurt these um, just bonkers kind of comments out. But it's related, I think, to what my colleague, Onamik Sahar, who, who works at Goldsmiths and has uh, published a really wonderful and amazing book called Race and the Cultural Industries um, just a couple of months ago. He, he talks about how there's a set of like ideas and expectations that underpin, um, in his case, the media sector, but runs right across cultural industries, which is the kind of like, you know, industry stories that, yeah, precisely the kind of like, well, you know, if you have a black superhero, it won't sell. Or, you know, a woman couldn't possibly uh, sell a big, you know, kind of summer superhero film. Or, well, you know, uh, a sitcom about an Asian family, you might get one of them. But, you know, once you've had one, people don't want to see more. And this is almost directly opposed to how... Um, media markets usually work which is when something has been successful you get a lot of copies of it you know i mean you only need to think about uh, how the music industry works in terms of you know a particular genre um has you know a kind of a leading hit and then record companies or you know, what's left the record companies pile in with similar artists from that genre you know trying to kind of kind of sell and you know similarly with with film, television, etc., and there is something I think quite depressing about the inability to shift the um, industry law. You know, the the tales, the uh, almost the kind of like the fantasies that sustain cultural industries about what works and what won't. Um, it's interesting that you kind of highlight that in such 
an explicit way. Because um, usually, uh, again, this is an anonymous book, but in our field work, uh, these things can often be a little bit more subtle in terms of uh, funneling um, those people who don't fit, quote unquote, the norm um, into particular markets. You know, so the idea that like um, an age Know, interesting stories about what it is to grow up in Birmingham in the 1970s, not be, be writing, you know, crazy, insane historical sci-fi because, you know, the gap in the market for Asian authors is this kind of, you know, other orientalist um, kind of approach to, to selling their work. So, yeah, you know, usually, or at least in the more kind of, you know, contemporary setting these things are more subtle but sadly it doesn't surprise me that you've you told that story of a of essentially a kind of a, a quota fulfilled and then you know a, a lack of wanting to take risks because of the perceptions of what sells and what doesn't yeah it's uh, it's very i and uh, just a not necessary plug for the listeners but the, the book the good immigrant is amazing for many stories of that as well um yeah my wife's uh, written one of the chats in that and she has had a life of being cast as terrorist's wife because she is half arabic yeah uh, and, uh, and it, and it runs, like, literally anything that isn't, uh, and not, not to get on my high horse, but anything that isn't an RP speaking, like, kind of tallish, posh, white man is straight away into the idea of you've got your typecast. Mm. And, and the flip side to that is, like, the assumption that, you know, the men who are the norm can play, you know, they can play, quote-unquote, down, or, you know, in some cases they can play... Uh, trans women or you know to an extent they can do whatever they want because they're the norm they're the default and else is kind of struggling to get past the perceptions of casting directors and writers and, and this kind of stuff and it's you know that's an issue for actors we myself and sam wrote a paper about this but it's also an issue right across anything that depends on kind of um forms of cultural representation for its success and one thing that I've never, or in fact, something that I'd be interested to know myself, really, is what is what kind of effect does a lack of working class representation in the arts have on working class people? You know, would if if representation was more equal across the board, would that make? I mean, I know it's very hard to say because it's a hypothetical, but would, do you think that would make a noticeable difference to people's lives? Would it make a change in society somehow? What? Yeah, I, I mean, I've got two answers to that. One is the really tedious, cautious academic answer, which is because I've not yet seen the kind of definitive theory that presents a causal relationship between representations in the cultural sphere and social and economic political outcomes, I can't really say what the difference would be. That said, though, it's blindingly obvious that if you have, you know, broadly speaking, uh, a system of cultural production organized around one social group that is highly overrepresented, then it will be their cultural interests and their perceptions of society that are most prominent on stage, on screen, on the news, you know, in, in newspapers, etc. And, you know, one way of kind of illustrating that is, is that relationship between a white middle class cultural production system serving a white middle class educated uh, audience. And, you know, surely it would be the case that the dynamics of cultural consumption would be very, very different if um, who was making culture um, was, was different. And, and 
again, when we think about the way that uh, different social groups are represented, um, particularly by, say, journalists or on, on television, maybe we'd have a very different view of debates, for example, over immigration. Um, you know, again, you have to be cautious. It's not the case that there's a great sort of groundswell of, um, you know, positive um, pro-immigration representations um, in particular communities that are not working um, in television. You know, debates about immigration are, are very complex and are very kind of fractured. But it's fair to say that we have appalling and, in some cases, absolutely inaccurately disgusting representations of, say, the immigrant experience into Britain um, on, on, on stage and screen. And, yeah, surely that would be different if it wasn't just the kind of... Um, guesswork at best, but also kind of fantasies um, of essentially middle-class men commissioning teleprograms that was determining representations. Sure. I mean, it's, it's um, and I'm probably very badly misquoting something from my A-level media studies many years ago, <laughs> but I remember, I remember being taught about the hypodermic needle effect, and uh, I remember my teacher at the time using the bill as an example, saying, well, people weren't happy with the police at the time, and the bill created a more favourable uh, kind of outlook of the police for people, uh, you know, being on, on TV. And I do sort of feel like in recent times, like we had Black Panther, which is a superhero film with a, with a black lead being a superhero, <laughs> being a positive role model, you know, more things things like that would it does feel like they'd have a an overall impact just in the way that that society sees people yeah i mean this is the thing like i i always kind of think we, we should be really cautious about uh these kind of yeah you know hypodermic crude relationships of like you know if you just put like positive or negative images of certain social groups on telly then people will have negative attitudes towards them that said though like you, you know it's not a stretch to say that if you're a daily mail reader who has had you know well on over you know a decade possibly 20 years of aggressively negative views about the european union um every day on your doorstep or in your news agent then you shouldn't be surprised when you have aggressively negative views about the european union so although you know my kind of like academic theory head is very very cautious about the exact causal mechanisms here intuitively it's got to be the case that you know what we see on stage what we see on screen what we do or don't read in in novels and comics and, and, and newspapers is going to have some relationship to how we see the you know how we see and how we view the world and the more diverse the voices that are kind of in those public sphere um, places maybe the more diverse views about the world that we'd have and um, finally, very last question, something that I'd just like to ask uh, all of the guests, really, is just uh, apart from your uh, report, obviously, um, and there was a great piece in The Guardian about it too, um, were, what other groups, charities or studies um, would you recommend that people look up or follow online if they want to find out more about this issue? Yeah, so, um, I mean, can we do the two, three-hour version of this list? Like, <laughs> we're really, like, this stuff is really depressing because it's a big problem, but we're really lucky in a sense that it's almost a golden age for academic work in this area. So um, basically the kind of people I, I follow and tend to kind of retweet, um, just thinking, yeah, Onamik Sahar down at Goldsmith, Sarita Malik at uh, Brunel, 
Bell. Um, there's a Centre for Cultural Policy Studies of Glasgow, Kim Allen, Sarah De Benedictis. So all, all of these uh, these people are on are on Twitter, and that's kind of just in the UK as well, doing amazing work. On, on cultural representation, um, cultural production. I was really lucky to be part of a, an editorial collective that published a special issue of a journal called Cultural Sociology that tried to tease out some of these questions last summer. Um, you know, that, that might be worth um, sort, of, sort of looking at. In terms of the kind of charity sector, we've had a really great experience working with uh, Create London, who have been one of our partners. Um, we found the Barbican, actually, you know, they're a massive, uh, almost sort of part of the problem cultural institution. But we've, we, found, we found them really good in terms of, like, being quite receptive to the research and, you know, at least in our interactions, having, you know, seemingly a kind of genuine commitment uh, to think about how they might change their institution. Um, I mean, that said, who knows, you know, in five years' time, I might be here, like, decrying the evil Barbican, but I don't know. <laughs> so it's been a simple experience. And then Arts Emergency as well, who are our other partner. Um, yeah, you know, they are just great. And, you know, their work on both kind of arts education, but thinking more about challenging narratives of social mobility and, you know, foregrounding narratives of social justice is is something that's that's really positive. Um, and then there's like people like Kit the Wall who did a really great documentary um, about working class writers last year. She's editing a book about working class writing, uh, the diverse schools, Stephen Kaboomers um, and, and, and his colleagues project, which is about, you know, transforming uh, drama schools, act for change. I mean, yeah, these problems are massive, but I never get a sense that nothing is being done. Um, and even, I mean, this is like a really weird, it's not a plug, but even this week actually, or, you know, as, as you're listening to it, will have been last week or maybe even a couple of weeks ago, Arts Council England has been uh, running a pilot scheme to think through how it deals with social class. It's really difficult for arts organisations to grapple with um, social class as kind of people's identity, academic, uh, technical definitions of social class by occupation. So to see Arts Council England, you know, just having, having a go in this space and kind of saying they're committed to at least sort of uh, trying to think about change um, is, is great. And then the next step for them will be how social class intersects with uh, the other protected characteristics that they they work on and work with. So even the kind of organisations that the work is really critical of, I think have still got something to give in this area. Thank you today for the interview. Uh, the Panic 2018 report can be found in full at createlondon.org forward slash event forward slash Panic 2018. And Dave's own Twitter account is Dr. Dr. Dave O'Brien, B-R-I-E-N. Or if you go to Edinburgh University, uh, just go and annoy him on campus. I'm sure he would love that, uh, probably. Um, Dave gave a very long list of recommends, uh, so I'll post that on the Twitter and Facebook later this week. But also, um, I do want to give a special shout-out to Arts Emergency, who he mentioned, who are a brilliant, brilliant charity to help get arts to those young people who have much less access to them. Uh, do find them at arts-emergency.org or on Twitter at Arts Emergency.
Do you have someone political that you'd like me to interview for this podcast? Is there a burning issue that I haven't yet covered that you'd like me to find someone to interview about? Let me know at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or via at parpolbro on Twitter or the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group that I am rubbish at being admin on and keep forgetting to post things to. Uh, or suggest yourself as an interviewee and then when I call you up, only answer questions with names of people you'd like me to interview instead and after a very short amount of time, I'll do a swear and then hang up. But also, I'll secretly admire you for a damn devious plan. Well done. Brexit Brexit stuff is happening again. And by happening again, I mean nothing is really happening. I mean, it is, but it's also not. I mean, it's things like the Lords debating the EU withdrawal bill on the issue of the UK staying in a customs union with the EU after Brexit, and then they voted overwhelmingly that it should. Sort of. Except they didn't. They actually voted in favour of there being a plan, meaning ministers would have to keep reporting on the steps of negotiating, maybe needing a customs union, maybe. I mean, basically, as long as some minister shouts, Oi, oldies, we've had a chat about it with them lot who like waffles, and we're not sure yet. You know, if they did that just once every so often, that would do. Apparently, this defeat is embarrassing to the government, but I'd have thought it's not as embarrassing as still not having any plan for if we don't have a customs union with the EU, even though government are saying that we won't. Aren't you glad this section is back? Let's quickly go through this again. Why would we want to be in a customs union with the EU? Well, that would mean that we'd share the same taxes on imports as the rest of the EU on goods from outside the union, meaning once they've cleared customs in one country, they can go to all the others without extra costs. It's like how, you know, if you order several things online, then you only pay postage and packaging once because they all get put together in an overly large cardboard box with a sort of plastic bubble wrap that you could disguise a body in, and you're like, but I only ordered three books and a pencil, and what's this weird voucher for some wines thing that I'm never ever going to use? You know, sort of like that, except also not really like that. It would also mean that there could be an open border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, which, you know, would be nice, wouldn't it, and save quite a lot of hassle. So why wouldn't we want a customs union? Well, because disgraced MP Liam the Disgraced Fox is a bellend, but also it supposedly mean we couldn't strike trade deals with countries around the world, even though some EU countries have done that, and we might be able to negotiate a new customs union that allowed some of that, except we probably can't, because the people we have doing the negotiating couldn't win an argument with a soggy paper bag with the words I've given up written on it in black marker and containing a rat waving a small white flag. And of course, why would you want to find an easy solution for Ireland and Northern Ireland when you can pretend that you're going to use technology to sort it all out, even though you have a government that doesn't understand encryption or how to use Facebook or driverless cars? So hey, I'm sure invisible customs checking border technology that doesn't exist should be an absolute whiz for them. So, Labour want a new customs union with Europe that would be like the old one, only not. And because May is banking her whole Brexit stance, albeit a stance that mainly involves her on her back, legs in the air, flailing around like a stuck tortoise... Because she's banking her whole Brexit stance on the idea we'll leave the customs union, rumours are that Conservative ministers are drawing up a plan for a customs union in all but name to get around the problem. Yeah, that old gem we've already heard. You know, remember they did that with freedom of movement and, well, all of Brexit? The papers are calling it an alternative customs union, which either means it'll be very lo-fi and grungy or run by angry, misogynistic, pro-Nazi teenage boys from their room at their mum's house. Which, to be fair, sounds quite a lot like what the government are planning for the Northern Irish border anyway. Nikki Morgan, the Tory MP who always looks like a pet who's worried its owner isn't coming back, she has called for rational debate on this. Has she not been paying attention to any of Brexit so far? I mean, there's no such thing. Chances are she'll be called a traitor for even mentioning the word rational as that goes against all of Brexit. 
Meanwhile, the plans for what will happen to EU citizens in the UK afterwards will finally be revealed in the coming months. Judging by the Windrush scandal, I'm sure the full plan will be for May to say she's sorry for any anxiety caused, and then she'll just hope that no one asks her about it again and she can quickly deport everyone. So, only nine months to go till Article 50 kicks in, and then another 21 months before we properly leave, and all we have to sort out in that time is the EU withdrawal bill, the Irish border, free trade agreements with absolutely everyone, regulatory divergence, i.e. how close do we stay aligned with EU regulations, a post-Brexit EU deal, and, well, what actually anyone really wants from this, and why, oh why, David Davis gets hired to do anything. Why do I get the feeling I'll be giving you exactly the same rundown in December 2021? Anyway, I suggest we call it a traditions intercourse and then just keep it exactly the same otherwise. Someone give me a job right now. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Uh, Thank you for the loan of your ears. I'll now return them with added interest. Uh, I'm not sure how that works. You may now just have bigger ears. Sorry to your hats and or correctly fitted earwigs. Uh, please do donate to the show if you can afford to at either the Patreon or the Ko-fi site and do give the show a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Audi Hole, Glibsyn or Buzztwat or any others that I've just invented. Thanks to Acast for hosting this show. Acast? Acast? I still don't really know. Uh, for hosting this hour of noise. Uh, and to my brother, Last Skeptic, who does all of the musics. Um, I saw him on Sunday and he was exhausted because he'd been out drinking with Taika Wahiti. Yes, uh, that one. Uh, Taika Wahiti? Acast? Acast. Um, and I was really exhausted because I'd had to change my daughter's nappy at 3am while she screamed in my face. So it is nice to know that we are both living the dream. This will be back next week when the government will announce a new hostile environment policy of just painting Michael Gove's stupid face onto the White Cliffs of Dover to ward absolutely everyone away. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Theresa May's Anxiety Remedy. Feeling concerned about being unfairly deported? Worried you'll never see your family again because someone can't do admin? Well, take one of these pills and it will do the absolute least possible to make you feel better. Theresa May's Anxiety Remedy, for when you only want to care in theory. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.